This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Western Studies. My name is Miguel Montero, and today we're coming to you from New Haven and Berlin. Uh, Beatrice Grundle's new 2020 volume, The Rise of the Arabic Book, published by Harvard University Press, tells us that, quote, In the 13th century, when the largest library in Europe, Paris University, counted fewer than 2,000 volumes, five libraries in Baghdad alone, number between 200,000 and a million volumes each, including multiple copies of standard works to ensure many readers simultaneous access, end quote. That book is a wonderful and lively publication that charts how the Arabic book as a new object became such a central and revolutionary technology in the Islamic lands of the Middle East and North Africa starting at the ninth century. It does that by focusing on a number of professions or social classes that were engaged with the manufacturing, writing, selling, and collecting of books in a way, in a, in a number of different manners. After receiving her PhD at Harvard in New Eastern Languages and Civilizations, Professor Grundle started a distinguished career in Arabic letters that led her to her current position as Chair of Arabic Language and Literature at the Free University of Berlin. Throughout her academic life, she has explored various themes such as Arabic poetics, print culture, the Arabic script, and of course, the Arabic book itself. Today, we'll have the great opportunity and pleasure of talking with her about the rise of the Arabic book. Beatrice, welcome to the show. Thank you, Miguel. Wonderful speaking to you. Um, uh, here at the New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, we have the tradition of saying that we have the tradition of asking for our authors' um, uh, personal uh, background or academic background, roughly something that tells us uh, how you got to write into this book. Could you tell us something about that? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to. Um, it's um, the story of the book is a long story. I started out being interested in poetry, and when I mean uh, classical Arabic poetry is not an easy thing. It takes a while to one understands what is going on because of the not only the many rare words 
written in those poems, but uh, because of the imagery, that can be very complex. So uh, it takes a little while and I spend some time on that. But then when you understand what a verse is saying and um, you, you, you know what the, you think you know what the words of a verse mean in linguistically speaking, you still don't know why was the verse said and what was the effect. And um, since the poetry I um, studied first is praise poetry, panegyrics, and already that is something that a normal modern reader wouldn't know, and if so, wouldn't maybe like, because, you know, it can be called, this is the flattery. So I had to sit down and understand why was uh, praise poetry so important. It was 90% of what poets wrote in the Abbasid period, so 8th to 10th century. That is the period I worked on. And I, I think I came to some conclusion about that, which, um, you know, spent me the time of my dissertation. But in the process, um, I realized that the, the content, the context around um, uh, who, who is the addressee, is the caliph, is a scholar, is a uh, high administrator, dignitary, who is the poet, what does he want? Uh, oftentimes, there is an exchange, so the poet gets money for the poem. If the poet gets no money for the poem, bad things happen. Um, in both directions, uh, of course, it's a, it's a very unequal relationship between those two and the poet I worked on developed, uh, this was Ibn Rumi, uh, developed a very sophisticated kind of rhetoric in which he managed to commit the, the hearer of the truth of what he was saying to him and it's rather sophisticated. And, uh, but then I, I wanted to know more about um, what is the entire field of action? What, uh, what do poets um, do? How do, they, how do they live like? Where is poetry performed? What are the settings? Uh, how is poetry conveyed? What are the media? Um, how do they establish the, the, um, the access to the person they hope to praise and earn an income from and so on and so forth? So I started collecting and I, I read a lot. I read pretty much every uh, single print, print, not manuscript yet, uh, printed book on that contained um, accounts of poets. And accounts, I have to explain that, this is, uh, the word still means news today, al-akhbar, but al-akhbar in, in, in um, Arabic books is a discrete entity, can be a, a very short uh, account, uh, and account is better than story because sometimes it's really dry and brief and a third person. And, um, but the, these, uh, these accounts have a very typical beginning, uh, something like a footnote that's a beginning because uh, it is traced to uh, who transmitted it, often not one person, but person A from person P from person C. And then person C may also have been a character in that event. So, so it's the first person narration. Not not all uh, accounts are like that, but oftentimes. And um, and if that sounds familiar, well, this is exactly the way that prophetic hadith look too, except uh, hadith has a completely different status. It um, you know it serves for uh, the formulation of laws and um, uh, and on doctrine, whereas the um, accounts or akbar I read in my books are mere literature. Yes. 
the people who put these together, who collected them into books, were often very careful about keeping uh, that uh, sort of footnote or the, the, the chain of transmitters as a, um, as a proof, as a source where they uh, held the information from and those early book compilers tended to be rather careful about um, treating their sources. So I was collecting and collecting and collecting and um, had what one would maybe call in German a, um, a Zettelkasten, like a file cabinet. It's all digital, it wasn't my computer. And um, um, since this was supposed to have been one book, it was a very long story and uh, year passed, year passed, year passed. So I started to publish um, parts of, of this database are transformed into articles. The first thing was I was interested in what, what does the monetary aspect um, play and um, because it was a, um, a totally different currency from the currency that literature is, you know, a currency as something that circulates in a, um, uh, in a metaphoric sense in a way. And um, so what was a poem worth? And uh, I assembled all those accounts in which um, there was some sort of financial counterparts to a poem because I wanted to see what was the actual va value given and proven uh, of a poem to have. And this could be money or it could be that debts were paid or that um, taxes were um, uh, uh, not, not, not claimed. Um, um, and, and sometimes it was not even the poet himself, but um, uh, the um, population of a particular area came to the poet and said, we have been overtaxed, can you do something? And then the poet would compose a poem and pass on that uh, complaint in versified form. So there, there were multiple very diverse uh, situations in which I found that, so that became an article. And so on and so forth, I kept publishing articles about from these snippets about um, about the lives of poets and poetry, and um, uh, how uh, what what their situations were, is represented in in those accounts. Then um, uh, I realized, as time went on, that there was quite a bit of information about the aspect of media. How was the poem written down? How was it passed around? Um, how did the oral performances then change a poem that had been written down? You know, was it cut or expanded? And in all those mediatic aspects and, and which poets uh, used books to compose um, their, uh, their works or books were passed around and they were hidden or people didn't, um, they heard a poem and they, they didn't admit that they hadn't understood something or they, they wanted it written down, but then they would go, they would leave and come back and in secret say, can you please dictate this to me? So there were all sorts of, uh, in those mainly ninth century accounts that um, uh, revealed different facets of how one dealt with poetry from, from the media side. And I kept collecting and collecting and I think, hmm, this is really puzzling me. Now I have to start another storyline that, that ran parallel. That happened while I was at Yale and uh, two colleagues, a computer scientist and an Egyptologist who um, we sat together and, and, and talked about uh, the history of media. This was the beginning of the internet. It was the first year that um, the Yale uh, application had gone online, imagine. 
um, and uh, <laughs> uh, and we, we had the idea. Well, media is really a great topic, and let's do the the human history of media based on turning points. And um, so, of course, our first turning point was the invention of writing. And uh, so we covered the earliest writings in cuneiform writing and hieroglyphs. And the end was the Internet. Uh, so there were a couple of things in between. Uh, one, uh, of course, the invention of movable types, Gutenberg. None of us was a specialist, so each time we invited lots of uh, colleagues who were the specialists. And um, of course, Chinese was quite interesting, and I learned on Aztec writing, Nayan and Aztec. So we, we learned a lot in this course. But the problem was there was one period, uh, the, the invention of the alphabet, this is number two in line, because any kind of script, but then the the reduction to the to the uh, to the alphabet system that we still have today as a as a writing system, but also as an organizing system. Um, that was another sort of major phase. Uh, but then then there was this black hole. What happened between the invention of the alphabet and movable print? As if nothing had happened, many things happened, and this is where I felt well. Uh, there was the Arabic book revolution, as I called it then, and this is something that would have not surprised my colleague next door because all of us in uh, the studies of Arabic language and literature, we know that um, uh, from the eighth uh, uh, century onwards, there are just so many books you can read and they're preserved nowadays. Not, not the actual manuscripts, but the um, edited printed form of those works. That is what we learn in class or what we, what we read in class with the students. So eighth and ninth century, in are really the the first centuries with lots of text um, in preserved and written form. Doesn't mean in the seventh and sixth century before there was nothing. There's, for instance, very famous uh, pre-Islamic poetry from the sixth century, but we have that because it was transmitted over two centuries through professional transmitters, first of the poets and then sort of transmitters who collected them. And then finally, philologists, yes, philologists, I mean that, in the 8th century, 7th and 8th century, who would um, interview and, uh, those transmitters and have them dictate the entire works of poet X uh, or female poet Y and have these and and wrote these down with all sorts of critical remarks like if there was an alternate transmission of a verse and occasionally uh, they would reorganize the poems and then another level was to write commentaries on the difficult words etc so the eighth century then prepared the earlier literature uh, so that it could be um, recorded and and transmitted so um, I thought the story had to be told and uh, made that the um, fifth of the, uh, the, the third of the five great turning points in the history of human communication. We, of course, took our mouth very full and there were many, many things uh, we did not have in this course. But it made me aware that there is this... Um, this jumped or ignored phase in in uh, in in the history of in the cultural history of media that needed to be dealt with and um, and then I have to open the third storyline before I dealt with poetry um, when I was a rather young student I was interested in where the Arabic script came from 
and that was just a term paper. And I, I love writing system that always interested me. And I wanted to know where uh, from from which uh, previous alphabet was it derived? And there was a big fight going on at the time between uh, was it from Syriac or was it from Nabataean? Both are late Aramaic alphabets. And um, to me, the case was clear. It's Nabataean. And Alfred Oman, uh, Adolf Goman had, um, I believe, proved that in some earlier studies. But uh, some scholars chose to ignore that and pretend, no, the question is not decided. So I, I decided the question. But in the process, I engaged with with how the um, how the script system functions, and the Arabic script system because it does not write certain things that are left out, but also because the structure of the language is matched to the writing system, functions in a very closely connected way, and. Um, uh, I'm, I'm also a bit of a decipher, so, so that fascinated me. And um, but then I, since you know, you only need so many uh, historians of Arabic script or paleographers, they say, uh, in the world, and there were no professorships in such a field. I decided, okay, let's do poetry and get myself a job. Um, but then when I came back to now. Um, Filling that that sort of black hole in cultural media history by by giving some attention to the Arabic book, then then this dimension of how how this how this book looked in the ninth century became came back to my mind, and uh, at some point I wanted to build a digital library of all early codices, and in the meantime one of my doctoral students Yusuf uh, Adawi is actually doing a similar thing. Uh, because those artifacts that uh, there are about mm, yeah, 20 to 25 books or pieces of books, codices, fragments um, preserved from uh, from that time. Now I'm not counting Qurans, um, and I'm also not counting administrative papyri. Then we have more. But in terms of books that that um, are real, either science or literature, about that many. And they all, when you look at them. They all look drastically different. So even their graphic um, presentation shows quite a variety. And if you think this is a new medium that people just just um, took over, they didn't invent it. Of course, the the, the codex is a is a Roman invention, and it was certainly produced already in uh, the Middle East in cloisters because we have early Christian writings in Greek or Coptic, uh, Syriac. Uh, so, so books were known as a information carrier, but then they were adopted and used by uh, writers of Arabic. And, and still today, there is really no, um, we say, smoking gun for that, except there are some books that, um, and these are mainly early um, Arabic Christian Christian Arabic books that are written evangels or um, or part parts of the part, part of the gospels um, and this, while the script is in Arabic the gatherings so the folded pages that that are put together to groups and then sewn together to make the book they're sometimes numbered with Greek numbers uh, so the so the technology of the bookmaking still use the Greek and then the the actual writing the books Arabic. There, there are one or two cases of that, but in general, um, that exact proof is still out. Although we do know 
there is no other place that this know-how could have come from. And uh, as we um, will talk about later, uh, not all things that happen are recorded by historians of the time because certain things we find very fascinating are totally normal or of no interest whatsoever for, for the contemporary people. And we get upset because we really want to know something about that, but they didn't think it was worth writing about. So particularly um, anything pertaining to artisanry, to the lower classes, um, it, it just didn't make it into literature because it was not in that sense tellable. Uh, and uh, so we have to wait maybe one or other um, day we will get a habar that um, um, betrays a bit of about the bookmaking technology. So I um, brought back the knowledge of script, but now the whole layout, the mise en page, how a script is organized on the page uh, with all the organization of different, you know, how's a line of poetry written, how's an, uh, a line of prose written, how are paragraphs, um, how's the text divided, um, is the speaker marked or not, you know, all, uh, everything that helps the reader's eye find information on the page. And the first thing that struck me is if you compare that to medieval uh, European books, they have this, what they call scriptio continua. Because writing material was expensive and they didn't have paper. Here is another important point. The, um, it, it used to be uh, parchment and, and that is from, you know, uh, dead animals. And um, so you need, you need a sheep herd or uh, to to produce a Bible, more or less. And you cannot be wasteful with your writing material because it's too expensive. And um, that may have been one of the reasons, though medieval historians will know uh, better than me. The fact is that in uh, European medieval text, there is very little spatial arrangement of text or spacing for, you know, to, to organize the content. And then seeing those early Arabic books that are sometimes quite wasteful. So you have indents, you have empty lines, and um, um, a nicely, um, either um, a nicely bounded page, a text block, sometimes not, but sometimes there's a play with, with, uh, with crossing the text block with, you know, continued to write on the margin, one or two words on all of it. So, so this awareness of here's a space you can shape uh, to make the story you tell in, in your book more interesting um, was radically variable. And I thought, hmm, this is really striking. And uh, then I realized this deserves uh, being put together. And um, But then I struggled a little bit um, with uh, the book because I had this myriad of details and um, um, sometimes yeah, blessings come from heaven and this was uh, I got a free year to spend in Berlin at the Wissenschaftskolleg where I could read and read and read. So I could complete now that I had this interest in media, I needed to read more on biographies of scholars, for instance, or uh, media historical backgrounds. Uh, so, so those things that um, I needed to complete the picture, I had time uh, to catch up on. And then, uh, but the, the biggest problem was how does one write such a book? Um, you can sort of uh, put the database down to paper, um, all the different types of actions performed with, uh, um, you know, 
uh, books or uh, writings, how they were produced and received and uh, and so on and so forth. But that would not make a book and uh, nobody would have read that from cover to cover. And um, I always love to write, uh, love to read historical biography. And that inspired me a little bit because I, I then had begun through, I think, the fourth or fifth book of Hermione Lee, who is a wonderful historian. Uh, she wrote on Edith Wharton and, um, uh, and some, some other notable uh, female characters. But she does so by burdening you with an incredible amount of detail and precision and, and, and elaborates on um, in her Virginia Woolf book on, on, the, on the whole um, historical panorama of the society at the time. And I thought, hmm, if, if this is acceptable and not bothersome to the reader, obviously she's very successful, I thought, hmm, I can try some similar thing. And um, that's when I started to look where would um, my, my different accounts, the many, many accounts I had, start to overlap and or touch each other. And how could I, you know, um, stick a couple of them together and contrast them to make, um, to show something that appears in many, many others, but show something by, by not, um, you know, burdening the reader with 100 different names on one page, because you get lots of names. That's the beauty of those sources. They preserve really every single individual name and then the, the chain of transmitters. And and as a reader of of classical Arabic texts, you are swamped with with such names. And on top of that, the names are complicated. Uh, they, each person has four different types of names. Uh, so so it's uh, Ahmad ibn Muhammad, and then he is maybe al Baghdadi because he comes from Baghdad, and then he has um, uh, a profession. Then is al Hayat, and then uh, his creed. He might be a Shafi'i. Then he has a child. Um, uh, his maybe um, um, Salma, and uh, he has a daughter. Then he's called Abu Salma. Um, so and then uh, as the story goes on. Of those four parts of names, only maybe one part might be used. So you don't know who are we talking about. And when you when you want to really keep the sources as as close as they are, um, you have to be extra clear that the reader doesn't get lost. And uh, so I started clustering the stories, and um, that then basically became the chapters of the book. And um, I, it was rather a nerve-wracking procedure because I'd never written a book like that. But um, so far, it seems that uh, uh, it has not shocked anybody. Well, I can say it was uh, for me. It was the 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 really really interesting way of presenting the material, as you say, focusing on the. Um, on the um, on these specific classes, on these specific personalities, using them as sort of a lens through which to paint a uh, a society. Um, con- congratulations, as far as uh, uh, as far as I can I can speak for myself, it really really worked. Thank you. <laughs> so um, um, I I wanted just to ask you just before we move through those chapters and through those people you are you were mentioning whose identification and whose uh, charting of their lives makes up such a such a central part of your book. Um, if you could tell us something about the um, 
the maybe the political or socio sociological state that's going on at the time of the book. You've talked, you've told us about the kinds of writing that exist. The uh, you've talked us about, you've told us about um, uh, some sort of oral transmission. You've talked us about, told us about the uh, parchment. But now on the um, on the um, on the economic side, on the political side, what's what's going on that, that's that's enabling this um, this technological revolution? Hmm. Well, if you start with technology, of course, we have to uh, talk about the material, and um, the material is um, paper. And in the case of Arabic, it's paper made of discarded rags and ropes. So uh, rag paper, we say, to distinguish it from um, the earlier Chinese paper that was uh, made of mulberry bast, uh, that was the bast fibers between the tree and the bark. Now that traveled um, sort of slowly along the Silk Road, and the Silk Road is not, um, as one might think, a road, but it's rather a mesh of, of different uh, trade positions and uh, but many many cultural innovation and also Buddhism uh, sort of moved across um, that the the Silk Road and amongst them were also the uh, was uh, the production of paper and um, it made it into to Eastern Iran uh, sort of in at the end of the uh, well, by, by by the end of the eighth century, it made it to Baghdad. But the um, the most plausible uh, point of transfer was a governor, a later governor of um, of Baghdad, who was in Khurasan in northeast Iran, and there spotted the paper. And um, now the Europeans also heard about paper early on because let's remember um, Spain was El um, Andalus uh, a long time so at the time of the, the conquista um, that was concluded in 1492 but, but started much earlier um, they they had a chance to see this writing material and the, also the Italians got it a bit further but the Europeans turned up their noses and they, they were not very convinced and also paper was so thin and, and um, it crumpled quickly and parchment was much better. Uh, so, so it's not that Europeans didn't know anything at all about paper, but it, um, it didn't quite catch on. Um, whereas the paper in the, the Abbasid context was seized on as um, immediately. And the writing material before that had been used was papyrus, and uh, you know, that is an old material. The ancient Egyptians have already produced it, and it's very durable uh, writing material, as, as we can see from the many papyri that have reached us from ancient Egypt. But it's, um, it's a laborious technique. You have to, by hand, um, pounce uh, layers of very, very thin layers of the stem of papyrus plant into each other. So it's labor intensive. But the, the larger point is you need the papyrus plant. And the papyrus plant is, uh, maybe if you've tried to grow one in your room, is, is not a very happy mover. And uh, if it doesn't get enough water, it, uh, yeah, it dies. And um, there was the, um, since the, um, the Abbasid capital had moved to Baghdad, in 762 uh, from Damascus earlier in, um, in the Umayyad period and some interim places. 
But uh, Baghdad um, was not like Cairo with a lot of the huge delta and moisture and uh, where papyrus just grew like weeds. And um, so one caliph tried to plant papyrus in Baghdad to make their own writing material and uh, it, com it miserably failed. So they had to import their writing material from Egypt. And if the Egyptian governor was in a bad mood and without the paper, then the whole administration was stalled. And uh, there is a, a saying uh, to that effect by Amansur. Uh, again, with each such uh, account of saying, we can never say it is true. It only gives you an impression of what might have been. But uh, aside from that statement that is recorded in one of the administrative historians in Jafsiari, um, a paper was indeed produced very soon, very um, widely. And uh, for a while, you read in secondary sources here a little flag warning, oh, the first paper manufacturer was founded in Baghdad, then and then. And um, this is it's called a so-called ghost footnote. This happens in the field when, uh, when books copy each other. And I was looking for the source of this so-called paper factory and found nothing. None of the sources mentioned it, and it had... Um, it, it had um, come up in, in secondary literature and that's been copied. And But I also understand where that's coming from. This huge production of paper, which was then shown in uh, a number of book markets. Um, a, a, another historian in the ninth century mentions 100 book markets, so Jacobi. So this, this production had to come from somewhere and uh, there, there needed to be an explanation. But my explanation is rather that there wasn't one big factory. This is a modern idea. It's rather that there were a great amount of individual craftsmen, perhaps collective shops, and they made that paper uh, based uh, from rags, um, water-powered, and uh, also to this day, we are not quite sure if the water-driven um, hammer to, to, to mulch um, the, the rags in, into this a liquid uh, that is then cast through a sieve um, and hung up to, to make the sheets of paper. Whether that the water powering can be absolutely um, ascertained, it it is very likely. But um, but again, this is, is such in, such fascinating questions our sources don't tell us because we have little interest in uh, the mechanics of um, artisanship. Uh, so paper was uh, was a writing material uh, produced and um, uh, in available, probably at the beginning still expensive, but um, slowly decreasing in cost over this in the next century. Still doesn't mean that a, a poor person could have afforded the book, certainly not. But it was within the reach probably of um, merchants of, of people who had a good income, who made a bit of a sacrifice, could could afford that. And then um, that goes all the way up to the members of the elite and the caliphs. Of course, they had their own libraries or they had their own copyists, what they wanted. They had um, they just got a, um, a Vorlage, a, a, a book copy, and had that copied for themselves. Uh, so for the elite, it was, of course, um, cheap, though not always easy in terms of getting a book that was wanted, that the, the, the availability of a particular book, that is yet a different question. But the, the financial capacity of um, 
owning or acquiring books. Uh, that was no, um, there was no limit to that. But um, how did books come into existence? That is sort of, um, but maybe that is the next question you wanted to ask me. Um, we also have to think about what kind of literature was written. Yeah, and it is this context that you just described that, in a sense, enables or gives rise to a specific kind of social differentiation, social occupations, and specializations within this whole universe of book dealing. And you 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 name f your f the four chapters of your book according to four different of four of the of these classes and uh, precisely as you as you were just saying the uh, the um, the the relationship that you have to the what you want to write how you want to write for what you want to write is going to place you in very different in a very different circumstances for your for one of the maybe the first main chapter you 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 use the uh, use the lives of two different characters of uh, Abu Ubaidah and uh, Asma'i to to describe two generally different approaches and you sort of sketch their lives to make them as paradigms for different ways of engagement do you think you could tell us something about who these people are and why they are significant how they can be extrapolated to the rest of society why you chose them yeah in a way they chose themselves and um, the, um, the scholarship the type of scholarship they both belong to which is uh, is philology so they dealt with um philology and history with the preservation of texts and um ling text about language and the collection of um, early accounts on history particularly abu Beda. And um, so these were the people who also wrote the books. They, um, the early philologists wrote grammars, word lists, um, uh, books on, on particular grammatical events, um, and, and so on and so forth. And uh, so they also write about themselves. Uh, you very soon have something like uh, the biographical dictionary that um, started in, in the letter uh, part of the century as well. So it was obvious I needed to represent uh, the group of uh, language scholars. And um, the, the anecdote I ran into, which is a, um, a book describing the horse, of course, a rather important animal, second only to the camel, to which many, many uh, monograph dictionaries were devoted. So, so Kitab al-Jamal or Kitab al-Khayl, probably every single scholar of that time had one uh, to his name and not all are preserved, of course. But uh, you needed that because the early poetry was full with uh, descriptions um, of such animals and they, they figured in uh, in. Uh, battle descriptions or the, the poet's boast when he was uh, riding through the night and then uh, with the description of the camel with other um, animals or very uh, carefully accurate and detailed depiction of the camel itself you know every body part every bone has a name and the, with the horse the same is true and um, the the anecdote i found um, was 
uh, about uh, a caliph or uh, again in different versions um, is either a caliph or um, a high dignitary um, who wanted two authors of such a book to um, to recite the book to him and um, or to show the book and in that um, anecdote the two attitude towards a book um, uh, totally clash because one uh, is actually bringing his book, but uh, but the other one is reciting the book um, for memory. Because that is also a way that uh, an early Arabic book existed. Um, it could very well be presented orally and then written down, um, well explained, and then passed on orally again. So it would basically exist in writing, then hop orally to the next instantiation, and then be put down into writing again, and then uh, so that uh, written in oral form would uh, alternate um, uh, in a text, always um, accompanied by people, not any people, but people who understood book's content. And because they're so diametrically opposed, and the, the story um, existed in two versions. Uh, in one, it is the um, Al-Asma'i who represents orality and who was a real memory artist who wins and then he uh, receives as um, prize the horse that is brought in uh, to, um, to demonstrate uh, the vocabulary on, sort of, of, on the living animal. And in the other version of the anecdote, it's Abu Ubaidah who wins. And the best part is both books by these two uh, scholars are preserved today. So I could compare the actual books uh, to the account of, uh, of this event. And um, it actually uh, proved the, the anecdote true. Oftentimes anecdotes happen to uh, portray real situations. The, the Al-Asma'i book is, um, looks like an, um, sort of an informal book, one might say, not, not a finally redacted book. It's just, uh, you know, Habar after Habar after Habar, a bit like a written, like a transcript of a tape recorder with the Akbar in between. And it is not by him. Uh, of course, he's mentioned, but he's mentioned as the transmitter of it, as the Rawi, whereas the person who uh, wrote it down was one of his students. And uh, that is quite a common um, situation in early Arabic books, that a book was orally taught and then uh, turned onto, onto the page by a, a student of the author or even the student of the student, or the student of the student took the, the accent book of the student, first generation, and reorganized it a little bit, uh, improved it in terms of its formal appearance. And then, um, and you would call this a reduction. Um, so then the, the reduction of the second generation student is what we have today. Uh, so it needed two generations of, uh, actually three generations of people to produce the book. And uh, that is not uncommon in Al-Asma'i's book um, fits there. So when he started to compose or to organize his accounts into uh, on on the theme of of uh, horse vocabulary, uh, he probably didn't have on his mind that that would become a book. And so so this was the situation before, and the situation then later when um, the format as such had become 
common and uh, the the exclusive target of of written production, and that was Abu Beda. Uh, he right away structured his material, and when you look at his preserved books, it has tons of chapters and subchapters, and he actually talks to the reader in the second person. So he he already um, plays the role of of the written speaker who who addresses the author, and then he has something like a like a synopsis of all the contents on two pages. So he was already thinking about uh, there needs to be some some overview on one page at some place. Um, so with with him, we see the organization of the information is performed for the written reception, no longer the oral reception. And and these were the the um the, the perfect counterparts to show that. And then um I found some other interim people uh and also subsequent people, the sort of synthesis of uh, of those two uh contrahands is then Abu Ubaid. He sounds like the first person, but it's a different scholar. He lived generation later. So the first one is Abu Ubaida, the early one, and later one is Abu Ubaid, with the idiot. And uh, this Abu Ubaid is um, interesting because he was what one could say a professional book writer. And um, when when I got there, it's not that yeah, he lived just a quarter of a century later, but at his time, um, there are no Akbar at all that in the least uh, criticize this in any way or, or propose that, oh, orally would have been much better. Um, there is still the reading out of books, and he does that when he respects Hadith scholars, for instance. He has them come to his house, and they can read the book to him, and uh, so he explains things. So the passing on of the book is still oral. But the conception of it um, has been by now become written. You can also see that when people write about um, Abu Ubaid, then they say, oh, he was very good in Tasneef. Or when he put a book together, you could really, uh, that was really a good book. So people could compare and, and notice when somebody had organized um, material in chapters uh, in convenient ways or not. Um, and that's, that is only one generation later. So then we are in the second quarter of the ninth century. And um, so then the discussion's over. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And that's, uh, that's a fascinating story. Uh, I guess it also hinges in a, in a way on the ambiguity of the word kitab in Arabic itself, right? Which sort of can oscillate between, can mean writing, can mean book, can uh, is navigate, is being discussed as being challenged in uh, precisely by the by the book revolution or by the writing revolution that you are that you are describing uh, i would maybe use that as a way to to pivot to your second chapter uh, whereas the first one was called scholars the second one was called poets because many of the uh, many of these uh, lexica for um, for um 
parts of the horse and such were often used by people trying to make their own compositions. And you use your second chapter for precisely these uh, these people who both had their poems written or had ev- or had someone else's poems collected or had someone else's uh, uh, poems excerpted and made into compilations. Um, th- why did you feel like having a chapter on the specific way poetry was dealt with in writing in this moment? Why do you feel that was important? Yeah, that's a good question because one might argue, what do poets have to do with books? And um, uh, but I, I felt uh, it was necessary. And before I delve into that, I have to um, uh, add another um, uh, um, polyvalent word, uh, term. Of course, you're right. Kitab is is a piece of writing, a letter, and the book. Uh, and it can really be confusing if you do media history, you don't know what it is. Or a warak, you know, that's a sheet, but you don't know of what it is. You know, is it parchment, papyrus, or paper? It would always be a warak, the sheet, we don't know. And But uh, another term, and that brings us uh, to pose, is kala. Kala means he said, but in, uh, in a text turned into a book, Kala often means he wrote. So this is um, um, a remnant of, of oral literature that has been full-scale adopted into written style and continues to be used even if um, there's no point of speaking anymore. And uh, But then, when uh, and sometimes Kala is also used as a, uh, as a divider in a story, when um, there, there was a sub-story or a, uh, something told internally as an aside, and then you return to the main narrative, then, then the author will often put color. Then you know, okay, we get back to the main story. Uh, without before even having, uh, there, there having been any, any named narrator at all. Um, so, so it's a bit like, um, it's, it's not even a punctuation mark, it's... Um, it's a performance mark or a narrative marker. It's, it's quite interesting. But Hala also means compose of a poet. Um, and uh, you, have to, you have to be aware of these different meanings in different contexts. Now, why poets? Poets if, uh, figure in books because they were the ones uh, whose products, especially if they were early poets, um, their language was considered superior, pure, and um, eloquent um, when uh, such uh, complete works of poets were turned into uh, written collections. I mean, Umar al very famous, but then any early poets, Diwan would be collected. So poets were the, the, the objects of, uh, of bookmaking. Um, and poetry was next to the Quran and early um, speech of certain Bedouin tribes who were uh, considered uh, to possess eloquent language, the Mechamim, for instance. So that was sort of the triple A level of um, pre-Islamic Arabic. And uh, so poetry was needed as a raw material out of which to construct the system of Arabic grammar. And and the poets had produced that, uh, but philologists are putting it together. And but I wanted to give poets a, a voice and understand, well, did they have any say in that? And um, not all poets were the same. 
they uh, they were treated with different um uh yeah different attitudes as the pre-islamic poets were beyond uh, any doubt they not they couldn't be blamed for not being muslims because they you know it was too early for them um but they um were accepted as the canon they were made into the canon and um on on their language uh, later the later arabia was based with a couple of you know lopping off some irregularities and things when they need or sorry so the grammar did something with the language of the poetry for for sure but the core remained unchanged whereas um the later poets at the very same time when the book is being imported the um the, the best period is a time when many things change and one thing is the fashion of poetry changes into a way more rhetorical and um uh complex uh type of a language and partially it is because so much poetry has been assembled that that now it's time to sort of mesh one image with another to superpose and layer and strange but also intellectually the abbasid period was full with science with the formulation of new sciences you have the beginnings of theology of philosophy um so people started to become um more diversified in in their epistemic uh, uh cosmos as well as cosmopolitan to um pun intended the since at the same time there was the translation movement of greek uh, science uh among which also philosophy into arabic one was aware of um uh, middle persian literature um that was also in some uh, to some degree um uh, model although not that much of that is preserved so um the the typical scholar in baghdad ran into um a diversity of languages linguistic cultures and sciences and this of course had to have some impact on the poetry and the poetry sometimes quite intellectual and the the people who uh, collected the earlier poetry and used that as a basis for their um regularization of the grammar and codification of the grammar um not only was this new poetry not acceptable and not useful to make matters worse they might not understand it at times because they were not trained uh, it was still too early to have a poetic separated from grammar it was the the lexicographers and grammarians who were by default were the ones who would comment um write commentaries to poetic ones and when the poetry by itself became a play um that that, that lost them and that's one of the reasons that around one early poet his name is Abu Tamam and uh, there's a book of of his um about the events of his life written by Isuli a century later which I had the pleasure to translate and um around him a debate um uh started on whether this is poetry at all and whether it's terrible poetry or whether it's excellent poetry because as he had his detractors so did he have his fans and um so you you want the poets to say something about the issue of books and um the the question came up in particular 
again, the, the, the story wrote itself. Uh, this poet Abu Tamam um, used books, we know that, uh, because he was a, a poeta doctus. He, he learned the diwans of other poets. He had a Christian background. He was nobody's rawi. He didn't go through the regular training process of, of a poet. Normally a poet would be a rawi of another poet and then become a poet in his own um, right. Uh, that was not the case with him. We don't, we don't really know where he got his training. <laughs> Um, so, 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 sorry to interrupt. So, a diwan would be a collection of poems by a specific poem, would have a diwan meaning his collection, and a rawi meaning a recitator of or reciter of someone else's poem. Is that correct? Just so that. Thank you, and thank you for reminding me. Uh, yes, a rawi is the person who transmits, and uh, the diwan, other than being a piece of furniture, uh, has two meetings. It was first a, a government bureau or a, actually a list of payments, and it comes from Middle Persian. But then, because the, the meaning was a collect list of something, then a diwan is a, uh, the collected works of a poet. And there is a very, very famous book by that title by the German poet Goethe. This is uh, the, the East Western Divan um, that he calls it. So he, he uh, brought that um, word home into the German language. Um, yeah, so with Abu Tamami, no, he produced um, his rather inventive poetry uh, with um, using books, with, with helping books. At the time when, when other people used books, but they didn't make a big deal out of it, or they said, no, we know everything by heart. There was the lingering pretense that one was working purely from memory while a lot of people were writing things down, even if it may have been notes for one's own use and not to be uh, shared. Um, but then we know nowadays Abu Tamam is a book author. And, um, and it's an anthology, uh, several anthologies, but um, one is preserved, in which he organizes not whole poems, but uh, parts of poems thematically. And um, I always, you know, took that, you know, when I was younger, I find this is Abu, Abu Tamam's anthology. Uh, so there's about uh, bravery, it's about uh, um, uh, generosity, about, you know, all the subjects. And um, so you can, let's say I want a verse on this topic, then you look in the chapter on bravery. But uh, then as I, as I worked more with this book, I realized he never, he never disseminated this. I mean, we can't say publish. There were no printing houses, but he could have shared it with his students and had it copied and all of that. But no, that was not the case. He never designed this to be a book to circulate. And um, also the story how he wrote it is a, is a funny story. So when apparently he got snowed in in some library, though the explanation is a very, very late story itself and not completely believable, though I have to admit it is a good story. And of course, he was not into, into a, um, in the library of a one of his patrons who allowed him to use all his books. So he was not bored for the three months. He had to wait till the snow melted. Um, as, as again, it's, it's an unlikely story. But um, at his time, since he had uh, friends and foes, for mid foes, I mean people who competed with him, another poet um, by the name of Diabil, Al-Khuzai, didn't particularly like him. And the typical um, uh, criticism that was made of Abu Tamam is that he, he was not a real poet. He played with logical terms and he was more an orator. 
which is true. He uses uh, rhetorical devices. But sorry, that was the beginning fashion, and Caliphs didn't mind it, and secretaries didn't mind it. It's only the grammarians who didn't like it. So, um, uh, this other poet, Diabil, um is known to have written a book um, about poets. So, there, there is a poet writing a handbook for poets. Unfortunately, it is only preserved in snippets. So we don't know what his design of the whole thing was, was like, but here and there we get bits and pieces of it. And the book, of course, now this is the um, million dollar question, the book does not contain Abu Tamam. Who was the most important poet at the time? So we wonder why, why that is. And there are also anecdotes about this other poet, Diabil. Um, where he talks, so where they're taken from conversations, and those anecdotes um, tend to be rather sharp-tongued. And and in one of them, he he explains why he left him out. Yeah, well, he's no poet; he's an orator. Or there was one one statement um, that is quoted from this book. Another statement is, uh, well, uh, his poetry is three thirds. One third is stolen. One third is good, and one third is bad. And um, so that the issue of, of stealing, tzedakah, um, one can say stealing or borrowing. Um, it, in Arabic, it's the same word, and, and we can choose to give it a, um, a pejorative or, or a positive meaning. It depends on the context. And, and in this case, of course, as an accusation, it was meant uh, pejorative. So um, it was then... I'm reminded of T.S. Eliot's line about how bad, poem, bad poets borrow and good poets steal. Yes. Um, they, they, they collided particularly over one, uh, over one verse um, that, that Abu Tamam was um, accused of stealing. And there I found, uh, again, the varieties of, of this account because the, um, the account either attributed this particular verse to him or uh, uh, an earlier poet who, whom he had collected in his, in his uh, poetic collection, but whose name he had suppressed, it was a very unknown poet. So the accusation that he stole the verse is believable. But then I found another account uh, about the, the same verse being criticized for being a bad verse. And uh, so there's this paradox of, of an accusation of theft and an accusation of bad quality that that is already contradictory um but then in the in the accusation of theft the way to prove its truth or to dismiss it was a piece of writing and that piece of writing were notebooks and uh, so so the the this event was fought out over a written medium that apparently proved the authenticity or lack of it and both sides used the same medium one to claim yes and the other one to claim no. And it is, of course, it, it seems funny if you write a notebook about something and then say, okay, that's true because I, I have it here written. Uh, so something happens that a, a, the, the writing down of something per se starts to, uh, to, to receive a certain authority. And that's what I wanted to show in that chapter. Um, and all of this, uh, and all of this is made possible by a 
class of people whom often gets little attention, may, mostly because there's not much of a way to get access to them, as you make a point of, of saying, they are people whose lives would be tracked. We're talking about the artisans, the craftsmen, the traders, the people who dealt with the manufacturing, the producing of books. This is the, so you, you name the third chapter after them, you call them stationers. Um, and even though they fall uh, roughly out of the purview of the people who would be tracking the biographical lives and who enable us to follow the sociological social changes, you nonetheless argue for their centrality for this technological revolution. I found that fascinating and, and extremely interesting. Could you develop their, that chapter and then the lives of these people? Sure, gladly. Yeah, at first I was... Um... Uh, I was surprised that while the book as a, as a medium is praised, there is a, there's a poem by Al-Jahis. So people were quite aware that the book was a good and a new thing. And people, those who collected them, were proud of books. Um, or would sometimes there was also um, um, a, uh, insult people who were reading books because they didn't consider these people smart enough to read books. So... Um, the object is well known and current, but the people who produce the objects um, are really elusive. Now, thank God, here and there, the awarach, uh, is, um, if you translate it literally, it would be a sheeta, a sheet maker, from the word warak. Mm. And the, the, why, why I say stationers, not in the modern uh, sense of, of a paper shop uh, keeper, but in the sense of an early European stationer, they call themselves, so let's say in the London book market, um, Adrian Johns has written a book about that, because those people had a range of activities from making the paper to um, uh, choosing the book they wanted to produce, then producing the book and then binding it and then selling it. Uh, so, so a whole range of um, of activities along the process uh, of a book coming into being and coming to the market being sold. Not not each stationer did all of that, but uh, it was sort of um, uh, one, two, or three of these phases that they did. And in that sense, in this um, wealth of different uh, phases of, of the book production, I thought stationer is a uh, is a good translation. So I did find enough short accounts where I uh, stationers played a role, and usually, and this is where um, the uh, using the uh, the literary account is helpful. Usually, a warak uh, a warak, also a stationer, would be mentioned when there was some sort of uh, conflict going on. Was that about a book not being authentic or a book costing too much or uh, an author being asked to, to produce a book, but then the stationer said, nah, I don't want so many pages, write it shorter. So, so whenever there was some kind of conflict about the book's production, uh, this is when the stationer suddenly becomes a, a persona. And this is, and, and it makes sense. So usually, uh, per se, if the station just produces books, it's not worthwhile. That's what he's supposed to do. But when there is a terrible event, some sort of suspenseful event um, uh, happening in the book production, then the stationer will play the role of a character, such as, um, one case, a scholar wanted all the books of um, Abu Ubaidah, the, the very same um, character we know from chapter one who wrote many many books but he was book stingy 
Now, this is another typical word of the time. That means you have written a book and own a book, but, but you don't pass it around. You don't lend it to anybody to read. And um, there were opinions about book stinginess. It was usually uh, looked upon as, as a negative thing because one should be a scholar who shares books or one should at least teach uh, people. So um, this, um, uh, this particular um, dignitary from uh, the Abbasid Palace wanted the complete books of Abu Ubaidah copied. And he had a set of copies. The story doesn't say where he got them from. May have been because Abu Ubaidah had traveled to town to meet the caliph and had brought them along with him to show him and was just about to take them back home. Possible. But then the story goes, it's a bit of a Rottlesteelsen story, uh, as one of my reviewer has written, that he, he um, the stationer is locked up in the palace and he has to, has to um, speed copy all these books. And because he can't do it himself, he's sort of under the door, he passes out the books to his colleagues who've come to his aid and they all together um, copy the books so he gets it done in time. The story again is quite unique. This particular plot, I, I collect plots, plot lines, um, is unique. I haven't seen that anywhere else, but um, it, it shows something that getting a book um, was um, not necessarily easy. And when I then and this is one event and a very remarkable event. All my other stationer stories are quite unique, each one. So there's no doubling of plots amongst them. But then I thought I cannot, I don't have enough of a density uh, that there's nothing that is representative here. These are all um, remarkable events. And that's why stationers appear in them. Then I stepped into biographical dictionaries. And this is where I asked uh, one of my uh, younger colleagues for aid, Maxim Romanov, who had a digitized version of the biggest biographical dictionary uh, at all, it's about 30,000 biographies, and who helped me to get all, every single biography about a stationer, a warak, also Koradi. Uh, Korad is the Sogdian um, foreign word in Arabic for, for paper. So then I went through each and every one of these, they were rather boring, I have to tell you. So and so and so was the uh, stationer of so and so, studied with so and so, his knowledge was transmitted so and so, and he died there and here he's buried. Uh, this is already pretty long. Most of those entries were, you know, two, three lines long, and you could already tell that the stationers were rather not important people. But then there were some stories where in... Uh, and and um, Zahabi's Tarikh uh, al-Islam, that is the name of this dictionary, biographical dictionaries, is not a very literary work. It's more a listing of facts. But now and then, things um, shine through that show conflicts. And turns out the conflicts that appeared in, um, in, in the, the, uh, that Zahabi mentioned in his biographical dictionaries were similar to the conflicts that were uh, developed into fuller-blown stories in um, the in the Akbar literature, such as uh, a book cannot be gotten. Who has a book? We have to get it from the author. So how how can we get it? I want to have a copy, and then the person must pretend to be a student and study from him while he's really 
uh, a secretary of the palace who wants to copy this for for his uh, for his boss. Uh, so such or or somebody sits in a class and then people say no, he's not really a student. He's not he's not a hadith transmitter. He's he's just a stationer or so. So um, similar disagreements by contemporaries about the behavior with and around books um, was repeated between these two very different sources. And that made me match them on top of each other and understand what um, what was going on and, and also identify one particular function of, of stationer when, when a stationer was basically a person who um, had replaced the oral transmitter, but was now a written transmitter. So this was the to-go to man for this book. He would copy it for you, get a proper copy, and you didn't get it from any other place. And this man could also teach you book because he had studied it with the author. Uh, so, so it was sort of a walking monopoly uh, for each book. And there are some stories that I, I can't tell each story. I mean, in a book. But that role disappeared again with another generation. It no longer occurred. And I, and I just think that the book had become so widespread and successful that it had eclipsed the ability of anyone being, being a transmitter to withhold copies uh, of it. So, so by then in the third quarter of the ninth century, um, I don't think it was important to withhold information anymore that was in any book, as long as it didn't drop in a river and was uh, erased, which happened now and then. For uh, that's, uh, I hadn't quite realized, but in a sense, the third chapter about stationers and the fourth chapter about um, about uh, libraries and book collection uh, mirror each other, even from an economic class perspective, in that you have these people who deal with many books, produce them, handle them, bind them, but then are by and large um, invisible. And then you have the phenomenon of book acquisition, the creation of very large libraries, and even by people who do not are not necessarily interested. They might be, they, they often are very much so, but who are not necessarily interested in, contents, in the contents of the books themselves. And book ownership uh, becomes a much more complex social phenomenon than simply consulting and access to information by, uh, by, the, by generals, by caliphs, by surely also by scholars and poets and, uh, and, um, and intellectuals, and, but, um, but also by people who are enabled by this newfound book revolution to, to have collected, to have assembled large libraries. And you, you focus this on, on your fourth and actual final chapter. Um, Tell us about libraries. Tell us, tell us about book collection. Mm. Yeah, the book became very soon a status symbol that uh, uh, people were uh, proud to show off. And, uh, and some of the more generous ones and allowed um, poets and scholars to use their books. Uh, imagine what a treat. It was before um, the, the large libraries that, that you uh, mentioned at the beginning, you know, by the 12th, 13th century of madrasa libraries and, you know, uh, access to them by, by students who study at these libraries. 
And um, but in the ninth century, that wasn't still the case, and the libraries that existed belonged to the to, uh, to the elite of the society. Of course, the caliph had one, and um, and the the upper echelon. But still, it started becoming a status symbol, and um, there is also the phenomenon of the book addiction, that certain people apparently didn't could never be anywhere without a book, um, um, wherever they went, uh, including the toilet. Uh, so the invention of toilet reading is a, a basset phenomenon, if one may say. And um, that was on, on the one hand, but... Um, and the uh, libraries were already organized. So Caliph and Mahmoud, for instance, in the story, seems to have a shelf list. So he, he doesn't go in the library and look for a book. He looks at his shelf list. And that is how he notices that a book is missing. And this is quite interesting. And that, that tells you that there was already a sense of ordering a library. Not that that is new in world history. I mean, there are the, even cuneiform tablets in um uh by um, in in large Assyrian libraries and by a library by Asurbanipal, for instance, had shelf marks and were stored in a particular way. So I assume I suppose ordering is a is a human need in each civilization. But um specifically in the Arab context, uh I was uh, impressed to see that so again I took the whole cluster of events that surrounded uh, this one, which also includes a, um, the, a story of a collaborative translation from Middle Persian to Arabic. Um, but then I wanted to not be too blue-eyed and say, well, the book's a great thing, because just like the smartphone today, um, it's a medium that disseminates or, or preserves um, or both information. But um, this is uh, this is neutral. It can be good or bad. And if the information should be um, hidden, such as um, an author's uh, heretical uh, beliefs or um, um, any embarrassing information about him, or let's say satire of a person, or anything one would like to keep under wraps. And um, here the book is uh, is counterproductive and. Um, um, for instance, I found one case of a court of law where the the heresy of one of the characters is proven by his or is tried. One tries to prove his um, his um, being a bad Muslim by his owning the Rastrian books that are on top of that uh, um, ornate with gold and all of that. So. Uh, any medium is a hazard. Uh, this is very similar to uh, in today's life if somebody confiscates your iPhone. I mean, it's of course much worse because uh, your, your mobile has uh, not only all your your communications, it also has your social life, it has your family. I mean, it's a complete disaster if somebody decodes what is on your telephone. It's much worse than, than at the time um, what one decided to put onto paper, yet the transition from somebody being totally able to um, to hide one's thoughts to this object uh, in which thoughts are now objectified and that travels and that, that's out of control. Um, that was uh, a step, uh, one of equal importance, I, I think. So I devoted some time to that. And then the the same book that uh, showed up in the uh, um, law court 
as um, in fact the the accused is accused of having Zoroastrian illustrated books. But then he says to the prosecutor, "What about you? You have an illustrated book in your house too. You have Kalila Wadimna." And this is a particular book. It's um, it's a fable. Uh, collection that acts as a handbook of uh, uh, policy making and uh, it goes back to uh, Indian sources but it was redacted in the Persian and um, it was translated early on one of the first books to be translated into Arabic and it very often has illustrations we don't have any illustrations from the eighth, from the 8th century unfortunately we don't even have the exact text version of that which is another problem but then I took um, I wanted to play devil's advocate and to say not everything is fine now that we have the book format we have these wonderful ways of designing a book layout and um, there is a awareness of book organization but here was a book that uh, exhibited a super organized structure even a frame story a frame tale and sub, uh, sub stories and um, and other things but it was so well organized that what happened it fell it fell uh, to pieces in the transmission process what happened is that it's um, quotables it's short statements it has many short images and, and maxims were supremely quotable and people made collections of the quotables from the book so that the animal stories that contained all the quotes fell by the wayside and um but i, I really mean this tongue-in-cheek uh as a book the perfect organization of this particular book uh was not received by contemporaries in the form it existed but um it took a late revenge because centuries after by the 13th century we have resurfacing surfacing manuscript of the entire book and since then it has become a, a classic of world literature translated into over all 40 languages and now uh, it is very much back so it did not fail at all it's had a temporary eclipse if we may say but in my my book on the rise of the arabic book this is the phase of this book history that uh, needed to be told and i don't feel guilty because I'm paying for it now and that, uh, that is the, my current project. I'm trying exactly to trace the story of this book that resurfaced in the 13th century in full. We have quotations from before, but then it, um, from the 11th century onwards, it already is translated into Greek and um, uh, then into uh, Castilian into hebrew latin and i can give you a long list after that so an incredibly successful book of global literature and um, there the problem has become a different one that i am now solving with a large team in my uh, projects called uh, the arab anonymous in a world classic or anonym classics the acronym we try to understand uh, what happened to the versions that resurfaced and the Arabic version then drastically differ so that we have instead of one book a whole textual tradition and um, it has become a completely new project because we edit this as parallel columns of different versions that um, you, you read horizontally so no event in one version is the same in the version next to it and that has been an enormous education to 
see a text moving as if you were photographing a waterfall. And uh, so that's, that's keeping me busy at the moment. Though we are, we are starting to understand um, first things uh, about, so how the versions hang together like continua that each each single witness of of a whole group is just a um a degree removed and the next is a degree further removed and the next yet a degree further but they have running all through them are certain phrases or words that remain so so you can clearly associate them but they also differentiate themselves it's what I call a continuum. And then, then other manuscripts uh, pick and choose and make a mosaic out of several models. And that's also fascinating to see how the people we study knew that the text had started to, um, to, uh, to, to metamorphose. And they used it to their advantage by picking or combining what they thought about as, as the best combination. So, so that's one project. And then since I like small quotables, um, that's, that's in a way what we have of our Kalila Wodimna in the dark phase in, you know, from the 8th century to the 13th century. You find tons of little maxims that um, illustrate um, writings. But then there is another uh, type of um, quotable. Um, author in classical Arabic literature um, that has not received enough attention in Western scholarship, I mean, and that is the poet Al-Mutanabi. And that is my next um, uh, interest to see what has happened with, with his poetry. And um, of course, he has a collected, um, uh, he has collected works that he, in his case, even collected and organized himself. But in his case, and again, he like, uh, I sound like Abu Tamam, and in some ways the, the two resemble each other, except that Mutanabi um, is a century later. He uh, died in 965. And um, there are certain of his verses that have this incredible, irresistible power to travel through text and to basically knock you flat because they say so much in so few words. And these verses have been collected by, by some scholars and literati in the 10th, 11th, 12th century, and then from then on sort of migrate through, through Arabic literature. And I want to trace them a little bit and see what is the chemistry of of this um, you know of this motion and 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 what happens with with these verses as they jump from context to context and um, one place they show up in is in in the Arabic um, commentary of Aristotle's Poetics and uh, Mutanabi is a favorite there and and you sort of wonder um, what is what is Mutanabi doing there as an example to explain Aristotle. Um, so puzzles abound, and um, but this is, uh, I suppose, I love puzzles, and uh, these two, I believe, will keep me busy for you know the next uh, years to come, and uh, then we can talk again. This is uh, so fascinating, actually. <laughs> um, uh... What I can say is that I really, really hope that when you and your team get 
something that we can bring here to the Middle East, uh, to the Middle Eastern New Books Network on Kaladwadimna and uh, on Mutanabe. This is who makes a fleeting appearance in your book, but this is absolutely fascinating. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, apart from that, I, I I wanted to to recommend everyone to take a look at your book to all of our, of our listeners. It's a uh, as we've been discussing here, it's a fascinating book. It's captivating. It's uh, full of both detail and anecdotes, full of both social uh, context as well as the uh, the, the more human-centered um, specificities of specific people. Um, I won't take more of your time, Beatrice. This was truly an honor and a pleasure, and I hope to see you again here. Thank you very much. Thank you, too.